Well, welcome to the latest in the Predictable Success podcast series in which we interview people who have achieved predictable success in their own chosen field. I'm Les McEwen, President and CEO of Predictable Success, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Marshall Goldsmith. Marshall needs little introduction here at Predictable Success. Not only has he been a great supporter of my own book, he's one of the world's leading executive coaches, the author of 28 books, and he's appeared in multiple times on just about every bestseller list, except those for diet books so far, anyway. <laughs> Marshall teaches executive education at Dartmouth's Tuck School, advises CEOs of many major organizations, and has been recognized as one of the 15 most influential business thinkers in the world. His most recent book, Mojo, How to Get It, How to Keep It, How to Get It Back If You Lose It, has just been published, and we're here to talk about it now. Welcome, Marshall. Thank you very much for inviting me. Marshall, as I said in the intro, most of the folks listening are going to be very well aware of your work, but they're not going to really know too much about your backstory. And I'd love it if you'd just take a minute before we get into Mojo to tell us tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. You're a multiple best-selling author, globally esteemed coach. What was your path to this point? Well, you know, I was a college professor, and I met a very famous man named Dr. Paul Hersey, H-E-R-S-E-Y. He was a highest paid consultant probably in the world in our field. He got double booked and I followed him around. He was kind enough to teach me what he did. I was so impressed with his work. I followed him around, sat in on his seminars and used his material in teaching classes. One day he got double booked. He said, can you do what I do? I said, I don't know. He said, I'll pay $1,000 for one day. I was making $15,000 a year. I said, Paul, buddy, sign me up. I said, I did a program for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company here in New York City where I am now. I turned out to be the number one ranked speaker in a two-week program. They were incredibly angry when I showed up, but happy when I left. They called him back and said, send Marshall back again. Paul said, do you want to do this again? I said, Paul, I'm your man. That's how I got into this business. Coaching was also by accident. I met a CEO of a big company, and he said, i got this young guy working for us, young, smart, dedicated, hardworking, driven to achieve, creative, entrepreneurial. Stubborn know-it-all. He said, it'd be worth a fortune to me if I could turn that guy's behavior around. I heard the word fortune. I said, maybe I could help. He said, I doubt it. I said, maybe I can help him. He said, I don't think so. That's when I came up with my idea. I said, I'll work with him for a year. If he gets better, pay me. If he doesn't get better, it's free. What did the CEO say? Sold. Since then, all of my work in coaching is done on a penalty for results basis. Um, I don't get paid a cent till the end of the project, and only if my clients achieve positive, long-term, measurable change. So that's how I got into that. How I, how I wrote the book Mojo, the backstory was, I do these programs at my house with retiring executives, and we talk about what are you going to do the rest of your life? And, yeah, they don't have anybody to talk to. It's kind of intriguing. And five factors matter. Health, I'm probably not going to change that. Wealth, and they have plenty of that. And in the United States, over 80,000 a year, it doesn't make you happier anyway. Relationships, which are critically important, but I talked about that in my previous books. And then the only two things that matter in life are happiness and meaning. So I really was focused on what is the definition of a successful person. And assuming you have good relationships, you're healthy, and you have enough money to make it through, all that matters is are you doing what makes you happy? And are you doing what's meaningful for you? And unlike my other books, which were focused on interpersonal relationships, this is intrapersonal. No one can define happiness for you but you and no one can define meaning for you but you. Uh, what was the uh, flex point, Marshall, that made you begin to look at the uh, intrapersonal issues? Well, I'm a that Buddhist. Book. I've been a Buddhist for years. So the, a lot of the book, uh, Mojo, is it's really a Buddhist book. 
By the way, I called Buddha and I said, Buddha, is it okay if I use all your material in this book? He said, it's fine. I said, do I have to send you any commissions? He said, no, nah, what the heck, just knock yourself out, right? So he said it was perfectly okay. So the, the book is, it's largely a Buddhist book. Oh, by the way, somebody did say 80% of all self-help books are just recycled Buddhism. So, uh, you know, the book is largely a Buddhist book, and there are many schools of Buddhist thought. Uh, I'm a member of a very simple school that just basically says, find happiness and contentment now. So if you were to summarize the core message of Mojo, what's right at the very heart of what you're saying? Uh, find happiness and meaning now. Okay. Mojo is that positive spirit toward what you're doing now that starts from the inside, radiates to the outside. And it's it's the simultaneous experience of happiness and meaning. Right. What we found in our work is uh, we, we look at the way you spend your life, and we broke it. My daughter, Dr. Kelly Goldsmith, is a professor now at Northwestern. So she and I did this research. And um, we did this research, looked at happiness and meaning, and we asked people various categories. First category was called surviving, low amounts of happiness and meaning. The second activities were put into the category of sacrificing. It's meaningful, doesn't make me happy. The next one is stimulating, it makes me happier, it's fun, it's just meaningless. Then another category is uh, sustaining, which is moderate amounts of happiness and meaning. And then the final category is succeeding, where you're engaged in behavior that makes you happy and is meaningful. And our work, the results of our research were amazing. We had a database of over 3,000 people. People that experienced high amounts of happiness and meaning at work tended to be the same people that experienced high amounts of happiness and meaning at home. People who were miserable at work tended to be miserable at home. What we showed is that your experience of happiness and meaning has a lot, to, more probably more to do with who we are than what we're doing. And a lot of it is not coming from the outside. A lot of it's coming from the inside. What did what did you discover, Marshall, for yourself in in exploring those thoughts? Uh, share with us a little bit. What gives you happiness and meaning? Well, I do three things. And I love my job, by the way. And I know my retirement date. It's called dead. <laughs> no one has ever made it. You mentioned that top 15 thinker list, right? Yeah. Well, there are actually 50 people on the list. And I can guarantee you, um, number one, I was probably one of the younger members of the list. And okay. I'm 61 years old. Number two, when are those people on that, on that list, how many of those people will ever retire? I can help you. Zero. <laughs> I was with Peter Drucker. He never retired. You know, Frances Esselbein, my good friend, she's not going to retire. Warren Bennis is 86, I think. He's not going to retire. Well, you know, we all have the same retirement date. Dead. Yeah, we retire when we die. What am I going to do? Play crappy golf with old people at the country club, eating chicken sandwiches, and talking about who I used to be in gallbladder surgeries all day? It really doesn't sound like that's much fun for me. Well, I think what's important is, for me, I do three things. First, I teach classes. That's actually what I love doing the most. I love speaking and teaching. That's the favorite part of my job. That's the most fun for me. Right. Then I do coaching. What I like about coaching is where I learn everything. I mean, you might think in coaching that I'm teaching things to my clients. I always tell my clients, I'm probably going to learn far more from you than you ever learned from me. Right. Which doesn't bother me in the slightest and then the third thing I do is writing. And the real thing about writing is just that's how I impact the world. I mean, I've had a million people buy some book I wrote. 
and then I've had over four million people click on something from my website. Right. And plus, you know, that doesn't count blogs and other things. I'm overall probably ten million people read something I wrote some way or another. Right. Right. Well, I can't talk to that many people. So the way I reach people is through writing. So I love my job. It's great fun. I don't have to do it. I don't have a boss. So if my work isn't happy and my work doesn't make me happy, it's not meaningful, whose fault is it? Look in the mirror. I'm an idiot. Well, you say uh, in Mojo that our default reaction in life is inertia. That's right. Our default reaction in life is not to experience happiness. Right. Our default reaction in life is not to experience meaning. Our default reaction in life is to experience inertia. We all tend to do what we've been doing, go where we've been going, be what we've been being. And one of the things I've developed is the mojo meter to kind of help combat inertia. Right. I love the idea of the mojo meter. Let me give you a little background on where the mojo meter came from. Uh, I think I told you I do this daily question technique with my coach. Yes, I've heard you talk about it before. Questions I write down every day, right? And every question is yes, no, or number, and it's amazing how well this works. And a lot of simple questions like, you know, how happy were you or how meaningful was yesterday? Or There's one I've never got a perfect score on. How many times yesterday did you try to prove you were right when it was not worth it? I don't think <laughs> I've ever got a zero in my whole life. I guess if I, if, if I remained in solitary confinement for a day, I might get a zero. But I would probably then try to convince myself of something that wasn't worth it. Right. <laughs> so, but I find this an incredibly useful process. Now, by the way, there's a guy named Dr. Atul Gawande from mm. Harvard Medical School. I'm going to be talking with him in a couple of weeks. He wrote a book called The Checklist Manifesto. Right. Great book. You know what his point is? The smarter we are and the more complicated our lives are, the more we need checklists. <laughs> Not less. We need it more because we're so busy. Our minds are cluttered with so much gunk, right? Yeah. Well, I think he's totally correct. I love his book, by the way. It's totally consistent with everything I teach. Well, now I've got the mojo meter, which is even better. Here's my problem. Every day is good, not good enough. I I lose it in the middle of the day. Right. I forget what matters. The mojo meter, at the end of every activity or meeting, you're asked two questions. During the last hour, how happy was I or how meaningful was this? Right. And so you've got this ongoing challenge as we go through life to maximize happiness and meaning. So uh, what I was interested to get a sense of from you, Marshall, given your own experience is, uh, can you build uh, mojo over time to a point where you begin to pull away from, uh, on a permanent basis, a default tendency to inertia? So take your own arc, for example. You've written 28 books. Was there a point at which you got a breakthrough and got onto, say, a national stage or got a voice that was being heard that really galvanized you more or less permanently since then? Can, can you break the gravitational pull of inertia? You know what? Not totally. I don't think so. Okay. I, in my life, I go through periods of what I would refer to as temporary sanity. <laughs> I, for example, I went to Africa in 1984 during the Great Famine. I watched a lot of people starve to death. When I came home, I was sane. I said, don't complain because the airplane's late. There are people in the world who have real problems I can't even comprehend, right? right? Another time I broke my neck when I was surfing, didn't know I'd ever walk again. When I could walk, I was so happy. Well, I met with a great friend of mine who's, uh, recently whose who's wife is very sick. And looking at a relative who's very sick like she is, can sometimes he said, the sad thing is my wife is very sick. The good thing is this has made me have some perspective in life. Right. 
I'm not bummed out by trivia like I used to be. Well, I would love to tell you that I've achieved some enlightened state where I don't need reminders mm. and where I'm above all this. You know what? Not true. Mm. That's, how about you? You achieved that enlightened state yet? Uh, I've, I've yet to finish the 29th book that Marshall Goldsmith's <laughs> going to write. <laughs> so, uh, By the got... way, any man, any man that I talk to who tells me they've achieved this enlightened state, I just ask one question, are you married? Are you married? That's right. Yeah. And if the answer <laughs> to t- that, let's... the next question is, do you have children? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, tell, let, let's ask them how enlightened you really are, right? <laughs> That's right. So um, you've got the uh, the great app, which uh, is downloadable. You can get it onto your iPhone. You yeah, also yeah, did yeah. an interesting thing with the Mojo Tweets. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I have a whole book called Mojo the Tweet Book. And, you know, it's kind of fun. So, you, you know, my whole Mojo book has been converted into tweets. So you can uh, retweet individual things that, and I noticed yeah. a lot of people that use Twitter, one of the things they're in effect doing, I think, is using it to build uh, a reaction against inertia. They're bunching off other people. They're getting little brief things that just get them reactivated and re-energized. And so here you have the whole of Mojo in retweetable fashion, which I thought was a really cool thing to do. Uh, yeah, it wasn't my idea. Uh, and, you know, I'm, and, and I'm really happy someone did it for me because that's a lot of work. Sure is. That's right. I'll have to get their uh, details from you, Marshall. We'll never get predictable success into tweet form. Um, very early in the book, you talked, you, you contrast two very different people. Um, a guy who I think you've um, anonymized and called him Chuck, and then Duke Ellington. Right. Um, what was the message you wanted to uh, convey in contrasting those really different stories? Well, the Duke Ellington story is about a person who just uh, loves what he does, has that fire in the soul, and never lost it. And, by the way, is a person who is still able to achieve relevance in today's world. Right. The, the Chuck story is a guy whose the job is gone, and he just can't admit that he's no longer what he used to be. He's, he's lost in what's called a sunk cost, right. and he just can't let it go. And if you look at it, uh, the Chuck character, sunk costs are one of the real reasons people lose mojo. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, they've invested so much in being who they are, they just feel like they can't change it. And sometimes, you know, what you are just doesn't work anymore, and you need to be open to the fact that maybe you can change it. And, uh, by the way, one other character I talk about in the book, I don't know if you remember, is called Dennis Mudd. Yeah. He's a man who put on a roof in our house in Valley Station, Kentucky. And he was the guy that gave me the inspiration for my penalty for results thing. Hmm. Dennis Mudd, I mean, here's a guy putting on a roof. Dennis Mudd was poor. We were poor. And the roof had a leak. And, you know, he recruits me to help him put on the roof. Well, I didn't want to do it. I was attitudinally challenged as a young man. But, you know, the guy had so much mojo, so much focus on what he was doing. He was positive and upbeat and... After a while, I kind of got into it. It was hard work putting on a roof. Probably the hardest job I ever had in my life. But, you know, at the end, he looked at my dad and he said, Bill, this roof is of high quality. Pay me. If not, it's all free. I looked at Dennis Bud. You know what I thought? This guy's poor, but he's not cheap. This guy's got, cl- this guy's got class. And I thought, you know, I want to be like Dennis Bud when I grow up. Just and to take that pride, uh, so much pride in your work that you could be completely confident about it. And And you know what? The other thing is it's really... If you really think about the story, and I thought about it after the book, it wasn't just a compliment to him. It was a compliment to my father. Mm, absolutely. 
Because what he's saying is, I know you won't cheat me. Right, right. So that's, yeah. a, and, and you're complimenting your clients? Man, I had, I had heard many times um, the basis in which you charge, but I had never thought about that aspect of it that is a compliment to them to say, we'll do this in the honor system and I trust you. That's, of course. That's fascinating. I've never been cheated my entire life. Right. And the, and the, the, Relevance, just to go back to Chuck for a moment or two, that resonated with me, Marshall, is that I don't know what state things were in at the point when you were writing the book, mm. but just this year, I think there are so many people who need to get the, that message of not locking themselves into the sunk cost of, of what they invested in in the past. And, you know, and sometimes you've got to move down. Sure, sure. But at least you're someplace as opposed to no place. Correct. And people just say, well, I was so-and-so, therefore I can't be such-and-such. Such. Well, you know what? You were so-and-so, but that's gone. Right, right. Let's move on. And how uh, how much is that associated with, um, and I, I love this phrase that you came up with, with the idea of nojo. Tell us a bit about nojo. <laughs> well, nojo is that opposite of mojo. If mojo is that positive spirit toward what you're doing now mm. that starts on the inside and radiates to the outside, nojo is that negative spirit. And I fly on the airplane all the time. Have you seen the movie Up in the Air? I have. Yeah, I thought about well, you. I, I, I actually have 10 million frequent flyer miles on American Airlines. Oh, do you? Way, oh, yeah. You've got the Clooney card. card. Yeah. What? I have the card. I'm frequently confused with George Clooney, by the way. I've heard that. Yeah, he, I've yeah, heard yeah. that. <laughs> George and I. <laughs> and I believe that there was a line cut from the movie where he, he he shows the card and somebody says, oh, you've got the same card as Marshall Goldsmith. Yeah. There's something like that, yeah. yes. <laughs> well, anyway, anyway, I see flight attendants all the time. And one would be Mojo. Positive, right. motivated, upbeat, enthusiastic, finds the work meaningful, funny. Uh, the other one is Nojo. Angry, cynical, bitter, negative, finds the work meaningless. They're on the same plane with the same time, with the same uniform, same company, same benefits, same right. everything. Right. What's the difference? Well, the difference is not what's going on on the outside. The difference is what's coming on on the inside. So you, you nail four main aspects of getting hold of your own mojo you talk about identity achievement reputation acceptance could can you you know give us a 30,000 foot summary sure. of those four well, the first key? one is identity identity is the way we define ourselves if mojo is that positive spirit toward what you are doing that starts from the inside and radiates to the outside who are you i talk about where does our identity come from is it remembered reflected programmed or created i talk about the importance of creating identity and i mentioned the rock star bono Mm. I had dinner with him one night as a great case study of a guy who's done a wonderful job of creating a new identity for himself in a way that's not easy and how we can all create a new identity for ourselves. I talk about in my coaching, I historically focused on helping people change behavior. Now I realize I also need to help them change identity. Mm. For example, let's say you think you're bad at giving recognition. Well, you work on trying to get better. Somebody tells you you're good at recognition. If you're not careful, now you're going to feel like a phony. You can say, well, that's not really me. I just acted like I was good at recognition because I got that coaching. Well, there's no reason you can't be good at recognition, but you don't want to just change your behavior. You want to change the way you define yourself. The second element is um, achievement. And I talk about achievement from two perspectives. One perspective is the more I don't know, normal perspective. is what am I bringing to the task? Motivation, ability, understanding, uh, confidence, or authenticity. And if you bring those to a task, you're probably going to do a great job. The second element I talk about those, what does the task bring to me? <clears throat> Does this task make me happy? Is it meaningful? 
Uh, do I find the task rewarding? Am I supported? Uh, am I grateful for the opportunity to do this task? Mm. And really, I've come to the conclusion achievement is not just what we do for the world. It's also what does the world do to us? And my daughter Kelly and I did a survey where we looked at people's definition of happiness and meaning in life. What we found out is nobody can define happiness or meaning for you but you. For example, gardening. Some people, gardening is low on happiness and low on meaning. Mm. Some people, it's high on happiness and high on meaning. Well, there's nothing inherently good or bad about gardening. It's just what does it mean to you? Then the third element I talk about is reputation. And reputation is basically what I do as a coach. In essence, what I'm doing as a coach is helping people change their reputation. And I talk about changing the way other people perceive us, which is, by the way, much harder than changing our behavior. So I talk about why reputation is important. We have a fun test on the reputation section called the brain pill test. Mm. Now, you can tell me what you do. Let's assume you take this pill tomorrow. If you take the pill, you're instantly going to be 10% smarter. But the world is going to see you as 20% dumber. Do you take the pill? (laughs) It's just such a great question. Well, what do you think? Would you take this pill? (laughs) I, I, I like to think that I would. But I think that's because I've learned so much from good folks like you. And I think it comes very much to the heart of that point that you made earlier. Am I prepared to not be seen to be right because it's not necessary? But, you know, if you actually handed it to me, Marshall, I just don't know. I wouldn't. You wouldn't? I would not take the pill. The reason I would not take the pill is my job is to help other people achieve positive long-term change in their behavior. Right. I take the pill and I'm seen as 20% you can, dumber. I'm you not going to be good job. at it. Right. So I, I wouldn't take the pill. Other people would. It's neither good nor bad, by the way. Sure. This one is a great question. Said, one woman said, I'm an artist. I don't really care what other people think. <laughs> right? Well, I'd take the pill. Well, right. You know, God right. bless her. Right? right? So it just helps you think about what does reputation mean to you. To me, reputation is important because if I don't have credibility, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. Which, of course, was at the core of Bono's uh, issue when he wanted to move into the charity work because exactly. his reputation needed to be shifted as well as his behaviors. And I talked about it was hard to change his reputation because a lot of people have tried to make that transition from celebrity to charity and they've just been laughed at. Right. And then the final element is uh, acceptance. And again, that's the more Buddhist part of the whole book. It's, you know, learning to accept what is and Something Peter Drucker taught me, I I mentioned a couple times in the book, that almost nobody gets. And if they just get this simple point, they have a better life, and they make a bigger difference. What is this simple point? Every decision in the world is made by the person who has the power to make the decision. Hmm. Make peace with that. Not the smartest person, the best person, or the right person, or a good person. It's made by that person. Once we make peace with this seemingly obvious point, it's amazing how much better life gets. Hmm. And we drop this, you know, poor me, I'm a victim, isn't it awful, or this, what I call, lost in logic problem. Right. Where we just sit there and talk about things that are not logical. Well, right? Life isn't logical. Right. Since when has it ever been logical? I mean, have you ever said to yourself, I bet you, have you ever said to yourself, I'm amazed at someone at that level, followed by his weird, crazy, or irrational? Have you ever said those words? A number of times. I'm going to point out how ridiculous these words are. Are you ready? Have you ever read a history book in your life, yes or no? Yes. In the history of the world, have most people, quote, at that level with status and money, have they mostly been women or men? Men. Old or young? Older. 
Older. Is there anything in the history of the world that indicates you take a bunch of older men, you give them lots of status, money, and power, they begin <laughs> to act incredibly sane and rational? Did you read that book? I have not got that book. <laughs> yeah, there, there is no book. <laughs> that book was never written. Yet we talk about the world we live in as supposedly people with power are supposed to be sane and rational and logical. What would lead you to believe that? Why? <laughs> well, um, one of the things that personally um, uh, is intriguing me, Marshall, and I'd love to get your view on it, uh, the, the work that we do at Predictable Success, as you know, is mostly with organizations and organizational growth. Do you think that organizations, groups, teams can develop Mojo, or is it just the sum of the parts? Uh, you know, I think they can. I am not an expert on macro-level things. Right. My area of expertise is micro-level. I help individuals achieve positive long-term change in behavior for themselves, or maybe even at the level of a team, but that's about it. Right. And as I've grown older, I've become increasingly simpler. Um, I used to be a college professor. I was a dean. I was a young, gung-ho PhD college professor dean. What was my goal? Teach people everything. I've now worked with 120 major CEOs around the world. What's my goal? Teach people anything. I'm a realist in my older years. You know, and I, I think it's great that other people are are trying to do massively big things with the world. But for me, I'm just trying to help a few people have a little bit better lives. Right. And I pretty much left it at that. I figure <laughs> if I do that, what the heck? That's good. You've stuff. done pretty well. That's, well about as hard, that's about it. Yeah, that's uh, that's <laughs> the bar for me. I've set that bar pretty low. It's a fair result, I think, Marshall. Um, tell me this just as we move towards a close. Uh, in writing the book, did you learn anything about yourself that surprised you? I think the one thing I learned about myself that also applies to the world is the importance that all of this has, not just for ourselves, but for other people. It just dawned on me. If I act miserable and you're with me, what's the message not just about me, but about you? You bum me out, right? <laughs> Or let's say I act like what I'm doing with you is meaningless. What's that message? It sends to you. You're not important. Right, right. And I think what we often don't do, back to the mojo term, is we don't even think about this in terms of common human courtesy. I mean, people who are always miserable and bummed out and angry and upset, what message does that send to the people they love? Right. The message is, well, you, you must not make me real happy. What message does that send to our children, our parents? You know, it's a terrible message. Or co-workers, right? Absolutely. So I think the reason to do this is not just for ourselves, but for all the people we love. So what's next, Marshall? What are you working on now? What have we got to look forward to for Book 29? Uh, I'm working on my next book. I'm always you know, thinking of a new one. I'm thinking of this new book called Simple Suggestions That Work. Simple Suggestions That Work. Yeah, and in the introduction, I'd say this is not transformational. Uh, it has no new buzzwords. You may have heard all of this before. Uh, there's nothing new here. These are actually simple, tried and true things that work. Right. Have you been keeping a, a sort of collection of those over time? Yeah, or yeah, still... I have been. I have right. been. So I was thinking about writing a book about that. That'd be great. Just simple, as simple. Because you know what I found out as I've grown older? That's what my clients like. Mm. You know what? Simple truth. They, they don't have time for complicated things. Right. I can give them complicated things, but they can't even remember it. <laughs> by the way, everybody everybody talks about ADD. Have you heard ADD, that term, how bad it is? Sure. ADD. 
Sure. It's so damn bad. How come 80% of my CEO clients are chronically afflicted with this? <laughs> That's right. It's become almost a badge of honor. Quite right. <laughs> it didn't seem to hurt them any. <laughs> well, Marshall, I, I really uh, appreciate you making time for us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for uh, giving us a great insight into what is behind the book. We're giving a copy of the book away to uh, someone who's going to leave a comment on the on the screen here where they're listening to this. And uh, I've just enjoyed the book as I have done with so many of yours so much and I'm very grateful that you've had a fun time to join us Marshall thank you so much well thank you very much I enjoyed it